So I'd like to start actually by getting you involved. Um, I want you to repeat a couple of phrases after me. And I want you to repeat them and listen to the sound of your own voice as you're saying this. I think that's important in a minute. So uh, here's the two phrases that we want to repeat until we've kind of fixed it in our heads. First one is, I am not in control. You can go ahead and say that if you want to. I am not in control. Excellent. See, I wasn't in control there. I already proved it. And secondly, I am not enough. All right, let's do that again. And listen to yourself say this. I am not in control. I am not enough. One more time. I am not in control. I am not enough. Now, those are words that anybody who's been steeped in Scripture for any period of time would say, that's true. Um, Also, anybody who has been steeped in life for any period of time and is not in that particular moment self-deluded would say that's true. Ask ask any parent of a a two-and-a-half-year-old if they are in control. Ask anyone who's training a puppy, anybody who's leading a divergent team of, say, 15 or 20 employees. We're not in control, right? We're not enough. So often we find ourselves falling short or just stressed because things are beyond us, it's hard, right? Now those two phrases have an implicit ellipsis afterwards, dot, 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 right? I'm not in control, I'm not enough, I can't leave it there. So then what comes next will really define how I engage life. Whether that is a place of stress and burden and struggle and fear and frustration, or whether that's a place of freedom and hope and consistent engagement, right? And what comes afterwards, I'm not even looking at what do I say comes afterwards, what, what would I affirm, but what's really in my heart? Because sometimes we may have one thing that's our stated belief, but if we, if we look at our heart, that's not what's really true. And so I want by the end of this time for those to be two very hopeful phrases. I am not in control and I am not enough. Hallelujah. Because I think that's what they're intended for. We'll catch up with that thought in a minute. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That would be wonderful. By the way, for those of you joining online, welcome. Really glad that you're with us this morning as well. And... um, Just kind of bringing us all back onto the same page, 2 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in a town called Corinth, not not dissimilar from Los Angeles, very important, very large, very influential city in the ancient world, not the city, but it's on the next list, and had had a lot of uh, pride, a lot of power, a lot of things about it, and they had very particular ideas of what... um, what a good leader, a good teacher, a good apostle would look like, and that's part of the problem. Paul's the one who started the church. He led the people to Jesus, organized the church. Things are going well for a while. If you've read 1 Corinthians, you know they have all kinds of problems within them that begin to unravel the church, and he addresses that. But then there's some other conversations going on. There's at least three or perhaps four letters that were written to the church in Corinth. We have two, and that's because that's all God wanted us to have, right? correspondence between Paul and this church, some of it was just strictly pastoral just for them. 
and some of it was for them, but also applies to us. Second Corinthians kind of brings up the tail end. There's a lot that has happened, and a lot of that has, has to do with the relationship between the Corinthians and Paul. They look at him and go, you're not impressive, you're not this great leader, you're not this great orator, we're wondering about you, and you're, you know, why are you so bold when you're so not this great figure that we would want, and they have other people that they see that are around them that are convincing them this is what a leader should be like, this is what a teacher should be like, this is what an orator should be like. So all of that's kind of the backstory. And Paul's hurt by that, and you can hear that in his tone, but more importantly than that, he's also very concerned because they, are, they have been at risk of rejecting him, and rejecting him then raises the question, well, I brought you the gospel, I brought you Jesus, if you reject me, what does that mean about your relationship to the gospel and to Jesus? It's, it's not just, hey, this is painful, my friends are not being nice. Your lives are at stake here, right? And so there's this back and forth that goes on. He sends, us, he sends a letter that's a painful letter. He has this visit that's a painful visit. And um, those things happen between uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and that's part of the background of what we're looking at this morning. Now, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, things have mostly calmed down. People are mostly realigned with Paul, and he's trying to correct a few remaining things, tighten down understanding, explain a few more things, keep people lined up. There are some, there's some more challenges that erupt, but on the whole, it's moving in a good direction. And as this letter unfolds, he gives us so many wonderful truths, and he also shows us, as he's talking to them about his ministry, what faithful ministry is supposed to look like, as opposed to what they've been looking at. And so all of that's kind of wrapped up in the background, and if you want to follow along, this passage actually breaks down with those two phrases. I am not in control is the first main section, and then the second part is I'm not enough. And for Paul, those are actually words of worship, words of hope. So if you want to follow along, oh, one more thing, one more thing. This is really important. Um, hopefully everything I say is important, but this is one of those. Um, we, are, we are hearing some very personal things from Paul. And some of these things are just very specific to his circumstances. He's the apostle who planted this church. And we want to be sensitive to that. But part of what he's already done in first Corinthians, he talks, or first, first chapter of second Corinthians, he's talked about here's what, here's what God has done with us. He's brought them in. So much of what he's saying, while it has very specific application to them, is also scalable and transportable. Kind of moves into our day and our age. He's speaking as an apostle whose ministry is to fulfill the call of God in his life in doing kingdom work, spreading the gospel, living under God's rule and helping other people do that. But here's the key that we need to keep coming back to. That is the only kind of life for a follower of Jesus. Every other approach to life is illicit. The only kind of life that a follower of Jesus is to live is one that comes under God's rule and that seeks to be redemptive in the world, seeks to help other people know and follow Jesus. It's just details of assignment. I'm not an apostle, you're not an apostle, but that same assignment plays out in a house, plays out at a workplace or a job site, plays out in a hospital, plays out in a neighborhood. So the, the contours of exactly what we do may differ a little bit, but the fundamental reality he's talking about 
is actually true for us too because that's the only life God calls us to, all of us. Live with me for my purposes in this world. And so that's the backdrop. Let's, let's catch up with Paul here. Starting in verse 12, he says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, Titus is not his blood brother. He's a brother in the Lord. He goes to Troas, which is the ruins of Troas are in modern-day Turkey, and he's expecting to find Titus there. Titus has actually been involved in the reconciliation work between the church in Corinth and Paul. So when he gets to Troas and Titus is supposed to be there and he's not, uh-oh, something's wrong. And, and Paul finds himself very, very stirred up and he goes on to Macedonia. He crosses the sea into what it, well actually Macedonia is modern day Macedonia. Once upon a time it was modern day Greece and before that it was modern day Macedonia and you get the picture. That area of the world, he's, he's crossed over there. He's supposed to be in Troas, that's where he wants to be. There's this open door of opportunity. People are responding to the gospel. It's great, this is his plan, this is his dream, this is what he lives for. And because something's gone wrong, he has to leave. I'll let that sink in for a minute. Have you ever been in a situation where the opportunity before you is opening up, you know it's good, you know it's right, you know it, this is awesome, this is what would, this would be such a good thing that God has for me, and yet some sort of circumstance says I can't stay there. How disappointing and frustrating that would be. How many questions there would be how much wrestling there would be. In fact, that's one of those circumstances where we're pushed up against the question of who's in control here. And the thing about this, well, turn over to chapter seven, 2 Corinthians seven. Paul doesn't tell the whole story to them there because they're living the story. They don't need him to explain it all in chronological sequence for them to understand it, but we do. So in, in 2 Corinthians seven, we get the rest of what's going on here. Pick up the flow in verse five. Paul says to them, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. It's not going well, right? But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. That's what he's been talking about. I couldn't stay in Troas. I was so distressed. I went on to Macedonia. Titus was supposed to meet me in Troas. He didn't. I, I, we went to Macedonia, and that's where I caught up with him. He came at that point. That was a comfort to me. And then the second thing that's a comfort, also by the comfort with which he comforted, he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So now we get the rest of the picture of what's going on in our passage. Paul goes to Troas, wonderful opportunity, it's what he's there for, and he has to pass on it because of the sin of the church in Corinth. They're messed up, 
Titus is supposed to be there. He's not there. Paul doesn't know what's going on. He goes looking for Titus because Titus not being where he's supposed to be can't be good news. Well, it takes a little longer. It does eventually turn into good news, but in Macedonia, that's where they connect, and when Titus shows up, Paul is relieved, and Paul is encouraged because Titus says the church is finally responding. They're releasing some of the grievances and the the misconceptions and the slanders and the things that have been wrong against you. They've repented. They're now zealous for you. In fact, Paul's going to have to dial down their zealousness in a little bit because they get a little overzealous. But there's been this shift, which is a wonderful thing. Thank you, Lord. That's great. That's the backdrop. But in chapter 2, Paul's just said, there was this cool opportunity in Troas and I had to take a pass. And instead I went to Macedonia. What he says next is kind of surprising. Because it seems random. It seems like he changed the subject. Right? Look, chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. A lot of significant stuff to unpack there, but before we do, notice how disjunctive it is, right? I'm talking about Titus and I'm talking about Troas and the opportunity missed there and in in Macedonia. And then he doesn't say, and here's what happens in Macedonia. He saves that for five chapters later. He just erupts into this praise. But thanks be to God who's always leading us. It's almost, last service got this. We'll see if you do. It's like a record. You ever see a record? (laughs) You you listen to it so much it gets a scratch and then it skips, right? You understand what I'm saying? If not, find find somebody with gray hair after the service and they'll explain it to you, explain it to you, explain it to you, explain it to you. (laughs) Right, it just, it just, just a, a total, whoa, we were here and now we're here, what's going on? This is crazy. Uh, in, in a former life, I was a disc jockey, right? And we would work with the records all the time and I remember one time I was in the sound booth, somebody else was on the air and I was messing around and I made the record jump. Like, which, you know, is, you're, not, you're a professional, right? Don't do this at home, don't do this anywhere, this is crazy. And then the, the disc jockey's like, what did you do? Now everyone thinks I'm an idiot. And so I said, well, you, you throw me under the bus. So they got on the air and said, that last creative homemade medley was courtesy of Robert Bishop. 100,000 watts of shame broadcast <laughs> that I had made the record jump. And it, no wonder it didn't sound right. Something was broken. Something was wrong. It doesn't connect. It feels that way here. It feels like, wait, weren't we just talking about something else and now you're saying, yay. Yay, we're led in this triumphal parade and and there's incense and isn't it beautiful? How do those things connect? I think as we understand that Paul isn't random, there's a real logic here. It also helps us to get what we want to get from this section of scripture. First, let's understand that uh, fragrance or incense picture. He says um, there's this out of our lives and the message of our lives out of the gospel that we proclaim, that's kind of what he's talking about in context there, out of that there's this aroma, this sweet aroma that God is just pleased with. And that spreads in the world 
and it creates a separation between people. I think it was Jim Elliott who said, who prayed, Lord, let me be a fork in the road, right? And, and that's really how you and I are to function. Not obnoxious and difficult, but when people encounter us, that they, they can't just keep going the direction they've been going, that, that there's something that says, wow, I gotta, I gotta choose for Jesus or I gotta, I gotta reject that because I can't just leave this lie. And what he says is, is, is to those who are Alive, it's the aroma of life, and to those who are dying, it's the aroma of death. In other words, the gospel is such good news. Jesus has paid the penalty for sin. He's died the death that I needed to die. He's conquered death in his resurrection. He offers new life. I can be a child of God. I'm no longer under condemnation. That's the message. That's what's being spread in the world, and for people who are responding to that, that is the sweetest, most fragrant Joyous thing, it is life itself. But there's a flip side to that. Because God only made one way. There's only one way. So if I receive Jesus, that's the one way. And the good news is that's for everyone. But there's not a second way. I certainly can't make my own way. Nobody else is offering a way. If I reject that, that aroma is the aroma of death because the gospel of life is also the gospel of condemnation. For those who won't trust Christ, for those who reject, death, right? So he's saying that's, that's what God is accomplishing and it's so pleasing to him. But he sets it in the context of a parade. Look in verse, oh, keep looking at the wrong chapter here. There we go, look in verse um, 14. This is where Paul erupts into praise. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through that, then, the beauty of the gospel is spread. So in the ancient world, conquering general, conquering king, would come back into the city. People would go out to meet him. There'd be a big party thrown. It's this wonderful occasion. It's going to be honored. It's, it's just awesome. And everyone's coming in. The army's coming in. And there's this big celebration. Now, that's what he's picturing. But we need to understand what specifically about that he's picturing. Because it's easy for us to go, oh, that's cool. Jesus is coming in. He's conquering. We're part of the conquering army. We're coming in, high-fiving everyone. Yeah, that was so cool. You should have seen that. And, like, that's not what he's picturing at all. Also in that parade are conquered captives, right? They are being paraded before the people to say, here's who I've conquered. And Paul says, that's me. I'm not one of the soldiers that's there high-fiving everyone. I'm certainly not the general. That's Jesus. I'm part of the conquered captives that are led along They're going where they haven't chosen to go. They're doing what they didn't start out to do. And in their case, it leads to death. Paul only rides the metaphor so far, though, because in his case, it leads to life. But he's saying, I am the conquered captive. Now bring that back to the questions that come out of that section we were just looking at. There was this huge opportunity. This is so cool. Look at what could happen in Troas. Why do I have to go to Macedonia? This is messed up. Now I'm going to Macedonia. And how does he start? Thanks be to God who always leads us in this victory parade. God is always working. 
God is always working out his will. God has a plan. I don't have it figured out. I'm not in control. I'm the conquered captive. I come along and he parades me through the world following his plan for his glory. And I'm content with that. My plan blew up. That's hard. Frustrating, disappointing. But God's bigger than that. And he has the right to parade me where he wants me to go. And he's going to ultimately let that fragrance come out. And I'm content with that. Let me ask us a couple questions as we think about this. Just kind of look at it in our own lives. Um, we, we struggle, I think, with sovereignty of God. We're in a culture that's highest value is you be you, right? And the motto that we don't put out there, but it's clearly the motto is you're not the boss of me, right? That's our culture. And in a way, that's the whole world culture. We've just kind of taken it maybe to a new level, but that's the world in which we live. Sovereignty is a difficult concept. And then when we do embrace that God's in control, then it's really hard to go, how do I fit with that? Right, so we have this battle that we wrestle with, the responsibility that we bear and the sovereignty of God. And some people lean into the responsibility side, some people lean into the sovereignty side, and it's like, ah, how do we do this? And Paul doesn't do that. He fits them together, but he doesn't put them part one, part another. He puts them this way. Here's where I am. I'm living responsibly. I have this plan. I'm discerning what's happening. This is what I'm trying to do, and it blew up. Guess what? God's still in control. I'm not running this show. I'm not at the head of the parade. I'm just one of the conquered captives. And he's moving me where he wants me to go, doing what he wants to do so that his work will get accomplished. I'm content with that. So the question we have to ask ourselves, I think, is are we, how are we doing? Are are we living as conquered captives? Are we living the lie? You know the lie, the lie that you were taught by the culture, by your parents. Your parents taught you this lie. And if you're parents, you've already probably taught your kids this lie. You can, you can do anything you want to do. Right? How many of us have heard that? How many of us have said that? And I understand there's a reason for that and within the right understanding framework, it's appropriate. But it's amazing how quickly that proper understanding framework gets lost and we just kind of live the lie. I can do what I want. No, I can't. That's a lie. And we all know it. I've used this illustration before. It's just ridiculous enough to make the point. What if my dream was to be a competitive horse racing jockey? Somebody's laughing a little vigorously. Has there ever been, ever been, a competitive horse racing jockey who looks like me? Don't think so. My medical records say I'm just a shade over six feet tall. I don't think there's ever been a jockey that tall. Do you? And you're looking at me going, I don't think it's the tall. (laughs) That's a problem, but the padding is even more so. I get that, right? But guess what? And I mean, that's on me. What I do with the frame is mine, but... If I were, if I, literally, if I were 0% body fat, there'd be two things true about me that would keep me from being that jockey. One would be, 
I'd still weigh 180 pounds. And two would be, I'd be dead and dead people don't ride horses. Right? It's, it's, this, is a, this is a sovereignly assigned dimension of my life. And my responsibility <laughs> is obvious, right? But there's things about me that are not in my control. I didn't determine how tall I was. I didn't determine the size of my frame, my musculature. I didn't determine any of those things. It is simply not possible in any world for me to be a competitive jockey. By the way, I'm also not going to bear children. In case you were wondering, that's close to me too. There's all kinds of things, and probably you are already thinking of things for you, for me. There's all kinds of things sovereignly established. I will never be a, a beloved French poet. I was born in the United States. I could learn French, but I still wouldn't be a French poet, even if I got good at it. Right? These are sovereignly assigned things. God established those. I didn't. I'm not in control of those. Is it really difficult to think that there might be other sovereignly established things that aren't quite so obvious? Maybe things that God has chosen out that said this is the path, this is the plan, these are the parameters, these are the limits, this is where you're gonna live. One of the reasons I get stressed is because I try to control when I never was created to control. I'm not capable of control. That's God's job. Paul, I am sure, is grieved that he has to leave Troas or he wouldn't write about it. But he doesn't attack the Corinthians. He could, it would be a great opportunity to say, see what you guys did? Because at a human level, there's th that responsibility. I don't know how it works out there, but it was because of their situation that he didn't stay in Troas. But he doesn't do that. It is grievous to him, and yet God is still God. Praise God, he always leads us. We are always those conquered captives on parade for his glory. And if this plan doesn't work, he's doing something anyway. He's got something that he's accomplishing here. I think Paul, Paul latches onto that. He doesn't assume the direction of his life, it's assigned to him. How many of us live under an assumed direction? How many of us live under an assigned direction? Because our direction is assigned. I'm not suggesting there's no choices. In fact, I would argue strongly just the opposite. There are choices, there's responsibility. It's a much more complex question than just, here's what God says, go do that. But at the end of the day, God has a plan that he is working and it includes me and it includes a trajectory for me and Paul's latched onto that. And I will be both more fruitful and less stressful if I live an assigned life instead of an assumed life. If I learn to be part of the conquered captives who's wherever you take me, I want your fragrance to emanate from my life. That's what I'm looking for. How, how many people are so glib? How many people are so glib about life and, and really kind of boil their life down to chasing happy and fleeing hard? When maybe that's not in God's playbook for my life at this moment at all. Paul's plans blew up. It's okay. God's didn't. Right? And maybe when I'm struggling with something, 
disappointment, hardship. Man, we need to back up a little bit and say, what's God doing here? First off, if I've been trying to plot my own course, that's not going to be blessed by him because that's not where he's working. That's not what he's called me to. He's called me to the course he has for me. But he'll birth that course even through my own dreams and heart. Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. But don't forget the first part. That's the person who's delighting in the Lord. That's the person who's centering on God and his purposes and his glory and and his plan and his kingdom and his will and what does he have for me. And that can look totally different for you than for me and yet look totally the same. Right, you may have a dream to do this or that or be this or that and that may all be part of God's plan but at the heart, he is working out something in this world and we are the captives that are led along in the parade conquered by Jesus, by his love. And we need to own that. Doesn't it say God showed his love for us in this? While we were still sinners, while we were still rebels, Christ died for us. We choke on that idea of being conquered. But that's where freedom comes. It says the poor in spirit, the ones who say, I got literally nothing. Those are the ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven. I heard this some time back and I just adopted it because I love the way it was phrased. I think it captures things really well. Uh, the faith that I was called for, for me to respond to Jesus is a blindfolded, hands-up surrender. And the life that is called for takes off the blindfold, but is still surrendered. And that's what Paul's living here. And so Paul experiences that, and though it's frustrating, no doubt, it's like, praise God. He's working it out anyway. This theme shows up again and again at different ways. Chapter 12 is probably the most well-known where he talks about the, the weakness, the suffering, the struggle that he prays God would take away, and, and, and God says, no. <laughs> it's in your weakness that my power can truly manifest, and Paul says, praise God. I will glory in my weakness then. Chapter three, or chapter two, he says, praise God. Plans blew up, God is still sovereign, he's still doing stuff, and I'm in the parade right where I belong, the conquered captive who gets to be part of the journey. Second section expands, right? Not just I'm not in control, but I'm actually not enough. Look at how Paul continues. Verse 16, the closing sentence, who's sufficient for these things? Right, I'm supposed to be life and death to the world, who's sufficient for that? I'm convinced if we take our calling before God seriously, there will be times of existential crisis. Because we go, who do I think I am? What on earth did I get into? I I can tell you, I am not one who is prone to that. I'm not emotionally or intellectually or psychologically or spiritually wired to have a lot of that, and yet I have a regular existential crisis about preaching. It's like, who do I think I am? (laughs) I'm gonna get up and tell people this is what God says? 
I mean, it's one thing to have the tools to study and say, I think I understand the text and be able to wrestle through the arguments and say, yeah, this one makes more sense to me than that or, or whatever, and that's important. But then there's the, the, the other level of it that says, and how does that apply in our lives? What's the specific insight that meets the need of this moment? And it's like, whoa, who's sufficient for these things? Paul is, 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 is like, my life is a dividing line. It's a fork in the road and people die or live based on how they respond to me because of what you're doing in me, God. That's a crazy thought. Wow. I am not enough. I am not enough. But then he unpacks it and brings it back around so we can say, but you know, it's okay. It's okay, I can do this anyway. Who's sufficient for these things? Verse 17. We're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Peddlers of God's word. There's a lot of people that aren't taking this the way they should. And, and in our day and age, we can look and say, there's some spectacular flameouts that people just got into it for the money or lost their footing and started pursuing the money. And that's one example of peddling God's word. But I, I think there's probably more pedestrian versions of it too, like people that just kind of do it because that's what we do. Just teach, draw a paycheck, do my job. I think that's peddling God's word. I think it's trying to sculpt the message, not so much to be relevant to life, but to be acceptable, right? This is what people want to talk about. This is what people want to hear. Here's eight cool things that you didn't know before. Here's the key to this, and here's the understanding of that. There's whole ministries, and, and, and maybe there's a place. I don't want to be too harsh. There, there could be a place to say our ministry is devoted to X or Y because that's a particular burden God's given us, but when, 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 when it's a church, we care about this, we care about this. Well, God cares about this. Paul says, I'm not gonna peddle this. I'm not gonna tell you just the stuff you wanna hear, just the stuff that's interesting, just the stuff that's most exciting, because that's what's showing up on Facebook. I'm gonna share what God has given. I'm not gonna be a peddler of the word. Right? Or for those of us that aren't teaching, how many of us are looking to be marketed to? I like listening to this, not so much because that's what I need to hear from God, but because it's cool. I think there's probably some room for some meditation on that in our lives and say, yeah, Lord, I wanna, I wanna really understand what you want me to understand. I don't wanna listen to a peddler. I don't wanna be peddled to. I don't wanna be pandered to. What is it that you're saying? Paul says, I'm not that. In fact, here's what I am. I'm one who's speaking in sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Now here's how those two things fit together. Who's sufficient for these things? Paul would be the first to say, not me. In myself, there's no way I could do that. And yet, the rest of the verse answers how. How he actually is sufficient, right? I'm sincere. I'm the best I can doing what God's called me to do, straightforward, straight up. And I am, in fact, commissioned by God. Right? He set me apart for this purpose. This is my role. 
Just another quick tie-in for us. Remember back in chapter one where it talks about here's the different things God's done, not just for me, Paul, but for all of us. One of them was anointed, which is God commissioning us to his purposes. Right, so it's not precisely the same as Paul, but it's the same idea. It's like, so I'm commissioned to this. And now how do I carry this ministry out? Well, I do it in the sight of God. Right, I, I know I'm accountable. That's in the front of my mind as I'm living and speaking and working. I'm accountable to God. He's watching. He's the one who commissioned me, and I'm doing this before the face of God. And then the last piece, and I speak in Christ. Right? There's this union with Christ that brings the presence and power of Christ into what I'm doing. I could never do this in my own power. I'm not trying to. This is what God told me to do. I'm not sufficient. That's okay. Here's the deal. It's about expectations. How many of us have expectations about proficiency? And then we struggle when we're not proficient. That is not at all God's expectation. God's expectation is partnership. I'm calling you into things that you don't have a chance of doing. Let's go do it. It's cool. We can do this. You can't, we can. Because guess who the big part of we is? Right, I have to live my life as if I am the junior partner. Junior, like very, very junior, like two point footnote font junior partner in this grand endeavor where God is doing it and yet I'm actively, responsibly involved. That's what Paul appeals to. That's what real ministry looks like. That's what I'm about. That's what everyone who's following Jesus is supposed to be about in their particular lane of assignment, commissioned by God, before the face of God, empowered by union with Christ. And the results show that. Follow on into chapter three. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Right? Do I, do I need to reestablish my credibility? He's not talking about, am I bragging? He's saying, do I need to reestablish my credibility here? I shouldn't have to. You're my credibility He's used this implicitly before, now he's just making it explicit. The proof of my ministry is you. Look who you are, look what has happened. That's my, I don't need a letter of recommendation to you, I don't need one from you, you are the letter of recommendation, and I carry that around in my heart. And you know this too. I'm not trying to reestablish, hey, listen to me, you're listening now, I'm trying to remind you of why and what that looks like, and, and, and what a life lived in partnership with God looks like. And then he has another very carefully, just as carefully worded as verse 17 is, chapter three, verse three. And, and I think a key for us to take is, by God's grace, I need to live carefully in verse 17 and, and chapter three, verse three. How can I be completely inadequate and yet do it? He shows me, here's the roadmap. In chapter three, verse three, it looks a little different. He says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. See, you're actually Christ's letter. You're not mine. I'm just the delivery boy. 
You're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It's God's work. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He's gonna pick up on that and carry it forward because he's gonna really launch into an extended picture of what the new covenant is and how that works. But he's, he's just kind of surfacing that here. There's this new covenant reality, and he's, he's, he's alluding to basically two things, I think. There's, there's a Moses uh, Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone illusion that's going to become front and center in the next few verses. Next week, we'll look at that. But then there's also a, a, about the human heart, and that's an allusion to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where God says there's a new covenant where I will remove your stony heart and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I will implant within you my knowledge. Nobody will have to tell you, know the Lord, you'll all know me, right? And he's kind of wrapping that in there, and what he's saying is, is look, look at what's happened. The world's changed, literally changed. You are part of a new creation. I am not sufficient for that. That's a God thing. I'm the messenger boy. So, God's called me into this. Who's sufficient for this? Not me. doesn't matter. I'm partnered with God. And I'm just sincerely walking before his faith, his face, in union with Christ, empowered by the Spirit, and he's doing it. He's accomplishing what he said he would accomplish. Which means the challenges that came along, like leave Troas with the opportunity There's no such thing as a credible challenge, ultimately, to God's work in my life, if I stay in that place, because God's the one who meets it. Doesn't mean there's not a bumpy road, doesn't mean there's not some mess, doesn't mean there's not some struggle. There's a very human dimension which's interwoven, but what he's leading into is, but the the deciding factor, it's God himself. I'm not controlling anything. I'm just the captured captive wandering in his parade. Where he takes me, that's where I'm going, and it spreads. And I'm not sufficient, doesn't matter. The Spirit of God empowers union with Christ, enables that sufficient. Those two statements, I'm not in control and I'm not enough may not word it that way, but I think they come up all the time in life. I'm not in control, I'm not enough. What comes after the implicit dot, dot, dot? That's the key. If it's, I'm not in control, I'm not enough, but I should be, here comes the stress, here comes the struggle, here comes the frustration, and here comes the failure, because I'm already on the wrong footing. It will not lead me where I need to go or where I want to go. But if it's I'm not in control, I'm not enough, but God, there's a lot of details of working that out. A lot of details. A lot of challenge. A lot of hard work. A lot of struggle. A lot of pain. I am not minimizing any of that. I'm just saying underneath it all, this is what's holding Paul together right here. I'm not in control, I'm not enough, but God. I think that perspective, I'm not in control, I'm not enough, but God, is the fuel for faithfulness. You know, the longer I live, the more I value faithfulness. 
You know, at 32, a challenge comes along, you go, yeah, let's take it on, hoorah. And at 58, whatever I am, I'll be 58 soon. Um, that's just less appealing. It's less like, no, rah. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. The answer still has to be the same. If this is what God's calling me to, then this is what he's calling me to. I need to step up. How do I do that? I focus on faithfulness, and I keep anchored in the fact I'm not in control. I'm not enough. I don't have to be. I'm not supposed to be. That gets in the way. It's not about proficiency. It's about partnership. And I lean into him. And the ride's bumpy. Paul sheds a ton of tears in his interactions with the Corinthians. It is anything but pretty. But in the end, it is effective. My life will be anything but pretty, but in the end, by God's grace, it can be effective. I'm going to ask the ushers to come. We're going to take our offering. I just want to pray for us. Lord, um, we call you Lord because you are. You are sovereign. You are in control. You're in control in Ukraine, and you're in control in our businesses and our homes. You're in control of the relationships that are going sideways and the dreams that have shattered and the fears that we have, the struggles that are before us. You're in control. And you're in control of the victories, Lord. May our lives, may we consciously and joyfully blindfolded hands up surrender that we would live freely as the captured captives in your parade. Lord, as we face hard things and disappointments and struggles, may that not cause us to lose our footing. May we see your sovereign hand sustaining and upholding things. May we be as responsible and faithful as we can. May we be those sincere people Paul says he is. But at the end of the day, may we rest in you May our lives be defined by grace and your greatness, not ours. Thank you that that's a reality we can tap into because of your spirit. May we do that. As we give these gifts, I ask that you would use them for the sake of your name around the world and right here. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.